This morning, I want to introduce today's speaker. I don't know if you're aware, but um, we have a South Campus in Byron Center. Um, John is the South Campus pastor there. Um, one thing about John that you, if you ever get to know him, he's really good with names. He hears it once, and then he just knows your name, which I think speaks to his caring um, and compassionate personality. So give Thanks, a hand Jesse. to John. Yeah. Thank you. Now we could do, maybe you did this in school or other places where they said, all right, everyone shout your name out on one, two, three. We could do that. I'm not going to do that because that's a total lie. Like, I'm not going to remember your name. So, but if you introduce yourself to me after, I promise that eventually after like 20 times, I will remember it. I promise. But we're, I'm so honored to stand on the back of many of you who have made that South Campus possible and the pastors and leaders that have gone before me at South Campus, and I'm excited for what God is doing. Um, God is at, on the move, and we're seeing the tide shift as we see new families and people coming to Christ, and next Sunday we'll get to celebrate baptisms together of people that have been made new in Jesus. And uh, even a couple weekends ago, as you celebrated your Scent event down at Heartside Park, um, we got to celebrate as well um, as we served at the Byron Days Festival. Now, if you're not a small-town person, that's okay. Um, I am learning to be a small town person right now. So Byron Days is a big deal in Byron Center. It's like way out of proportion for the amount of people living in that community, but it's really exciting at the same time. So between fireworks and cornhole tournaments and food and classic car shows, all of that, we got to serve cleaning up behind the parade as well as following the fireworks and cleaning up the park so that another church could have their service there that following morning. So we were pumped that we got to not only partner with the community, but also with other churches and seeing God's kingdom come. And so there right there is the Tootsie Roll Patrol with your very own Blake Hicks, our executive pastor there, the shades in the back. And so we got to come behind and just serve in a really basic and practical way, which was exciting for me to see. Uh, it was also exciting that night to be a part of the fireworks and making things better uh, for the community that God has placed us in in Barnes Center. So thank you for your prayers. Many of you have visited or sent texts and messages or, or have just simply prayed on behalf of what God is doing there. And we're excited that we're a part of the greater frontline family within that and that God is on the move not only in this area of Grand Rapids and not only south of you in Grand Rapids, but in our entire region. That literally we are part of seeing lives changed and people served through the essential store and other things in ways that we just have never done before. And so that's exciting to be part of that. And I still feel kind of new. I'm like two months into this thing, so I've by no means got it figured out, but I'm excited for what God is doing. So did I say excited enough? I just want to make sure. I just want to make sure I covered that word. So excited for that. We're in the middle of a series called Words to Live By. And I don't know about you, but maybe your summer's been super busy. Mine has felt really busy. And uh, last week, we were in week one where Pastor Brian brought forth what it means to be a person of the gospel, a person of the good news. And we kind of unpacked a little bit through it at both campuses, really, of the idea that the gospel is not just about accepting Jesus into your heart as much as it is about giving your life and your mind and your work and your career and your finances and everything to Jesus to be employed for his kingdom. Really, it's a, it's a mind shift for us. It's a perspective change. And this series, we're going to look at a couple words that help us to live better, that help us to live differently than if we hadn't fully understood them. Many of these words that we'll uncover are words that maybe you've seen or heard or read through in the Bible at some point 
on your journey with Christ. But my summer's been busy. In between Byron Days and other opportunities, I've got to spend some time with family. And a couple weekends ago, I got to go down to West Virginia, which is like, why did you choose that? I did choose it. Like, that's where I wanted to go. And so me and my brother were actually running a marathon down there, and it was all through the trails, and it was a little bit messier than I had intended it to be, but it was fun nonetheless. Now, I'll pause right there. You're kind of new to me, and I'm new to you. And so I get that that's weird. Like, I get that I ran for fun. And I, I don't, I don't want to make any uh, formalities about that. That's just what I like to do. And so I did that. But I found myself at one point in this course, it was all through trails. It's this uh, trail system called the Kanawha Trace Trail. The Kanawha Trace Trail goes through roads and woods and forests and cow paddocks, which at first I was like, how bad can it be? But I figured out at one point that I was running through this kind of strip of mud. And I figured out really, really quickly based on the smell and the stickiness of said mud, it wasn't just mud. It was a lot uh, different than mud. It was actually, um, the sign said bull in field. And I figured out there was, in fact, a bull in the field. And so I figured out really quickly, I'm going to have to clean these off. But it was a trail race, so I didn't even worry about it till the end. But now they smell, so there's that. But the big deal about that was I just... I stepped in what I thought was mud, and it was something very different. Maybe you've had those experiences where you go to a restaurant, you order something, and it comes out, you're like, that is not what I think I ordered. And I, oh, yes, it is. That is what you ordered. You're like, no, it's not. It's not. You taste it. You're like, it's definitely not what I thought I was ordering. Or maybe you bought a car, and a couple months into it, you're like, this thing does not drive how it first drove in the parking lot. And it's, it's a lot different than that. Or maybe you had kids. No, I'm not going to go there. But... There's a lot of things in our life that are easily misunderstood. And Jesus' words are no different. As we look in the Bible, as we look at some of these words, whether it's gospel or today we're going to unpack the word Messiah, when we look at the words like that, man, it's easy to skip over those things. I kind of know what that is and move on. Or maybe you've heard Handel's Messiah and you're like, that's what I think of when I think of Messiah. Or maybe you've been around church for any length of time. And you've read the old and new parts of the New Testament. And you see this word start to come up. But all of us, whether it's stepping in mud, thinking it's cow poo or something else, but you've had those moments where you've misunderstood something, where life has come at you in a different way than you anticipated. And Jesus in this story is also identifying with that experience. Jesus experienced what it was like to be misunderstood. And in this passage we're going to look at in, in the book of Mark, the story of the gospel, this account of all the things Jesus did and taught, we're going to see together that we too on some level have misunderstood Jesus. And I, I'm going to make a bold statement today. It's my second time here so I can do that without any repercussions. It's this, that all of us have misunderstood Jesus. That we've all had seasons of our life in which we found out that Jesus is different than we had once thought, or that we read through the scriptures and our experience is different, we know that all of us on some level have misunderstood Jesus. So we're not going to waste any time. If you've got a Bible, if you've got a Bible app, or you've got uh, eyes to view the screen with, we can check out Mark 8, and we're going to be in verse 27 to 33. I'm going to read it really fast, and then we're going to walk through the story, because the disciples were on the way to somewhere. We know that, that the disciples in this first verse are, are with Jesus and he's teaching as he's walking and they're going to this collection of villages 
called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a small place. You can see it circled there, kind of in the bottom of a valley. But they were headed there to do what Jesus was called to do. That was to bring life and bring teaching and bring healing to the communities he entered into. And as you read through the rest of Mark, you see this story unfold, but just picture yourself right now. We're on the way with Jesus. So in verse 29, 27, I'm sorry, it says this. Jesus and his disciples, that is the people following him, went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, just that village that was circled just a second ago. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist. My name's John, I'm cool with that one. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. Verse 29, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. There's that word. If you've got an underline or a highlighter or a pen, circle that word. You are the Messiah. Verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. All of us, too, have misunderstood Jesus. We know that Peter misunderstands Jesus, and why does he misunderstand Jesus? And here's why. Because in the Jewish mind, there's 456 references throughout Scripture to the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Deliverer, the Redeemer, showing up and, and liberating the people. But the Jewish people had lived under oppression for hundreds, even thousands of years, whether it's under the Egyptians' hand, making bricks and toiling away as a Hebrew people. Or as they stepped into this New Testament culture and context in which they found the Romans persecuting them and, and having their finger on them all the time and trying to snuff out this small Jesus movement that was taking place. Now the Jewish mind would have read the word Messiah and thought two things. One, sin would be defeated and the kingdom of God would be established. Now when we hear that, sin would be defeated and the kingdom of God established, we're just coming after a long series called Your Kingdom Come in which we fully unpacked what both of those things mean. But in the Jewish mind, that would have immediately come up as, oh yes, Jesus is going to kick Rome's butt and I can't wait to be a part of it. That's exactly what they're reading into this word Messiah. Messiah was someone who's going to establish his kingdom and, and get rid of all persecution and oppression and set people free, which he does, but not in the way that you and I might expect. That's the Jewish understanding of Messiah. And so when Peter answers the question in verse 29, it makes a little bit more sense why Jesus does what he does. Verse 29, if you've got your Bible, it says this, but what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? So Jesus takes the attention away from the group of disciples because he asks them the same question and turns it on Peter, one person, two eyeballs, and says, who do you say I am? And Peter, like a good Jew, answers this, well, you are the Messiah. You're the one who's going to overthrow Rome and take it over with military force and power of God behind you. But then Jesus does something particular, something a little weird. 
Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him and then goes on to teach what the Messiah really would do and how that would take place. And when Jesus asked Peter that question, who do you say I am? And Peter responds, you are the Messiah. That reveals that his understanding was misrooted. I mean, it was placed in the Old Testament idea, but he was missing what Jesus was up to. And Jesus changes it. He says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? That's a linchpin question. It's something that changes everything about what's about to unfold. And when Peter says, you are the Messiah, he's revealing that he's in the camp of, you're going to overthrow Rome and make my life a lot easier. That's what's going to happen. And Jesus turns it and starts in. And where we read is verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Why does Jesus say that? And why does Jesus change the word from Messiah to Son of Man? Jesus recognizes that Peter and the fellow disciples, this group of people sitting just like you and me, hearing the teaching, were misunderstanding who Jesus truly was, what the Messiah was really on the way to do. And he challenges that. He didn't want his identity to be misunderstood, which is why in verse 30, Jesus said, don't tell anyone. You clearly aren't getting it. You need to be quiet. You need, I don't want this rumor to spread even farther than it already has. But then he un, just kind of blows this whole idea open by saying what he says in verse 31. Because messiahs don't get crucified. People who have come to save an entire nation don't get hung and killed on a tree. That's not how the story is supposed to go. They had missed the prophecies. They had missed the references throughout their life in the Old Testament who Jesus truly was. And here's what I found out. As I read through this, it's easy. I'm like, uh, yeah, Peter, you dummy. Like, why would you ever think that? But then I'm like, oh, wait, I've had those moments, right? I want Jesus to be something other than what he truly is. Uh, my alternator went out a couple weeks ago on my car, which is a funny thing when you're actually driving it and that little battery light comes on. You're like, oh, this is going to be pleasant. And in that moment, I really wanted Jesus to be a good mechanic, like, I really would like that. I'd really prefer that Jesus show up alternator in hand and just boop, drop it in there and my car keep going. That's what I wanted in that moment. Or maybe you are raising your kids and school is coming back and you're like, oh, thank the Lord. But there's that face they make. They're like, um, I'm not going to school. I don't want to do that. Or I'm, a, I'm afraid of going to the eighth grade. I'm afraid to go to high school for the first time. And there's that moment you're like, I don't think that's the Jesus that's just going to fix the grades. He's not just going to make that work. He's not going to make your homework do itself. You've had those moments where it's just, oh, just be easier, Jesus, if you did exactly what I wanted you to do and just were the person I want you to be. But Jesus confronts our understanding of Jesus. That's what he does in this passage. Jesus comes up against the idea that Peter has of who the Messiah would be, the identity that Jesus had, he confronts that understanding. For many of us, the most powerful thing Jesus will do in the next season of our life is just continue to reshape who we think he is. Because right thinking about Jesus can lead to right following of Jesus. When we perceive the Messiah to be who he really is, life becomes different. 
And as I read verse 32, even in prep for this week, just think about how funny of an interchange this is. Again, if you've got your Bible, verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. Parents, have you ever had to speak plainly to your kids? It's like, no, 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 you're not hearing what I'm saying. We are not going on that ride again. Like, we are not going to Burger King again. We are not doing this. You are going to school. Can I be any more clear? My mom is from Mississippi. She speaks plainly, or so she thinks. But there's moments where she has to be extremely clear with me. Jesus spoke plainly to him. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, we, again, we read over texts like that. It's like, oh, yeah, that's normal. That is not normal. Like, Peter is literally dependent on God to give him breath to rebuke his son, who is now standing and speaking plainly to him. Think about the weirdness of that moment. So Peter decides, I know, Jesus has missed it, and I'm going to let him know what he's really supposed to be like. Like, he's missed what the Messiah really is, and so I'm just going to pull him to the side and correct him for a moment. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that with Jesus. And you see Jesus' response to that. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And I read that verse. I was like, again, I would never do that. Like if Jesus was right here, I'm not going to come pull him to the side and be like, hey, you missed it. Like there's some, that alternator went out. I had to pay for that to be replaced. So you clearly have missed your role in my life. No, I would never do that. But how often do you and I rebuke Jesus for not being the type of Jesus we want? How often do you and I twist some of these words to work in our favor a little bit more? How often do we rebuke Jesus' teaching for being too literal, too honest, too in our face? How much do we rebuke Jesus for not being Republican or Democrat enough? How often do we rebuke Jesus for not having enough wealth or or coming at our wealth? Or how often do we rebuke Jesus for not fixing the things that we pray for in the moment? How often do we rebuke Jesus for not looking like us, for sounding like us, for talking like us, for not being, for being too ethnic or not being ethnic enough, for not being white enough? How often do we brush over who Jesus really is? And I wrote that phrase, that, mo- that comment there that I just shared with you, even before the events of this weekend in Virginia ever took place. And let me just say as a pastor, not necessarily yours, but Brian is your pastor, but let me say as a pastor that we clearly denounce everything that took place this weekend. We rebuke the evil that took place. And we claim in Jesus' name that he is a king of blessing and grace and love and bringing together of people, not dividing people. And so we rebuke that evil and call it what it is. And so part of us can be rubbed the wrong way when we have to encounter a Jesus like this who does bring people together, who looks different than maybe we perceive him to be at the same time. His identity is Messiah. And we rebuke evil that's contrary to that reality. We rebuke things that are far from that type of kingdom. And if you are a Jesus person, and if you say amen in church right now, it would be an awesome moment to do that. So just three, two, one, let it go. Thank you. Okay, we're going to move on. But how often do we do that? How often do we misconstrue or sometimes misunderstand who Jesus is? There's a quote that as I was going through college, I read this book called The Pursuit of God. Now, The Pursuit of God is a small book 
packed with meaning. And there's a quote in it by A.W. Tozer that has continued to ring out in my mind. And as I prepared for the morning, I said, this would be perfect, a way of saying what I'm trying to say in half an hour and like 30 seconds. But it's this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And Jesus, in this exchange, is trying to, trying to get at that. He's trying to say, no, 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 Peter, you missed it. The Messiah is not one to come bringing a bigger gun or a bigger sword to take over Rome. The Messiah is coming to start a revolution of love, a revolution that brings people together, that crosses barriers in order for people to know that they are intrinsically valued and cared for by their Creator. Something that's interesting in this passage is that Jesus doesn't just rebuke that in Peter, but Jesus comes alongside Peter in a way that, if, again, if you follow Jesus and you experienced discipline or you had a parent who's really good at like chastising you but hugging you at the same time, it's kind of that moment. In verse 33, Jesus turns and looks at his disciples but says to Peter these words, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Again, I read that. I'm like, again, I'm never going to do that. And the last thing I need is Jesus to call me Satan. I've got bigger problems in my life right now. I don't need that headed my way. But what Jesus is really saying is this. Not just get behind me, but it's really this idea of get back in step with me. That your life is out of alignment with me. And I'm giving you the opportunity in this moment to realign yourself, to get back in step with me. Because that's when you find life. That's when you find grace. That's when you find your identity, your image being rooted in the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer. And I begin to ask myself in my life, where am I out of alignment? Where do I wish that Jesus would come rushing in as Messiah and fix the problem when he's inviting me into the problem? Where are the areas that I can realign myself that over time, again, if you've got a car that's out of alignment, that's one of like the top five worst things ever. You're like, get that car and belt tire right now. We're going to get it fixed. Or maybe you know how to do it, which I'm like in awe of you. Like you can fix it yourself or maybe you just have someone you take it to. But when your car's out of alignment, everything just feels, again, I'm going to use a Southern term, it feels wonky. Like things feel wonky when they're out of alignment. We've got to realign ourselves. And sometimes that's what Jesus does to us whether we're reading scripture or singing songs of worship or just gathering with this community or praying or coming alongside someone in need through the essential store or taking the step of baptism, we are realigning ourselves with Jesus because he will always confront our understanding of who he is. Imagine a world full and obsessed with fame, with status, with Instagram likes, with wealth, boats and jet skis that are more important than kids. Imagine a world like that. Yeah, like, it's not that hard. Okay, like I've got that. But Jesus steps into that world. Jesus steps into our world, confronting our understanding of what it means to be aligned with him and challenges that because Jesus didn't just come as a military force and wipe out everyone that was opposed to him and then leave the carnage for us to figure out. But Jesus came to step into this world and present a better way, a way of grace, a way that identifies the creator of the universe as a slave 
as someone who came to serve, not to be served, as someone who stepped down and washed people's feet, as someone who brings a, a different kind of love that's not just romantic or committed, but it's sacrificial, it's self-giving. Imagine that type of way. Jesus brings that way. In a world that's obsessed with everything else, Jesus brings that way. And here's what I found out to be true. Again, I haven't followed Jesus my entire life, but for the time I have, I've recognized this. And if you follow Jesus for any length of time, or if you're just sitting there checking all of this out and very skeptical, which is good, we are thankful that you're in the room. It's this simple truth that when we are fully aligned with Jesus, we become fully alive in Jesus. When we are fully aligned with Jesus, our lives become fully alive in him. There is literally no better way to live than in full alignment with Jesus so that our lives can be fully alive in Jesus. I went to Kingswood University, which is a couple days, no, I'm kidding. It's like 24 hours or something like that drive from here up on the east coast of our continent. And a lot of positive things happen there. A lot of life change happened there. And we had these things called D groups. And it's essentially a group of uh, people just like you, men and women who are journeying through Christian college and figuring out life and discerning their call to ministry and where they fit in this world. And for me, it was massively helpful to have that group of people. Some of my best friends to this day are people that I met in that group. And you do small groups here and we do small groups at South. And it's the very same thing. We want you to do life and live and discern life together. But in that group, we often would attend chapel together. And, and a couple times a year, we'd have night chapel services as well. They were kind of an extended time of worship and prayer and, and hearing God's word. And so we were sitting in one of those, and I just began to feel overcome. I felt wrecked by something that God was doing in me. And it really, as I look back on it now, was this idea of these two pictures of Jesus colliding in my heart and in my soul. It was Jesus confronting my understanding of Jesus. It was this collision happening in which at the end of the service, I just sat there in one of the back rows just weeping uncontrollably. Now I've cried like a whole three times in the last 10 years, okay? I can remember every single one of them, and I clearly remember this. That I was sitting in the back just overwhelmed that in this moment, I don't even remember what it was. Was it a song, a prayer, or something the speaker said? I don't really remember, but... It was a moment when my understanding of Jesus and Jesus' understanding of Jesus were colliding. I sat there and cried, and this group of guys were around me. And maybe you've had moments like that. It's just there's nothing more powerful than their physical presence, just being there and, and praying with you. And my best friend Jason was right next to me. And I couldn't believe the questions that were swirling in my mind. It's like I wasn't even a Christian anymore, and I simply asked this question to Jason as I was snotty, crying, ugly, not polished, weeping in front of all these people. If you're walking out of the chapel, there's no way you missed what was happening. I sat there and I kind of muttered this question to him with all the strength and power of my soul left. I said, am I even a Christian? Like, am I a Christian? Am I following Jesus? It just my life feels so out of alignment with what I'm hearing and reading and, and studying about who Jesus is. And like a best friend can do, in that moment, he simply placed his hand on the bottom of my neck and said, yes, yes, you are. 
And in this moment, you are figuring out what that means. I was confronted. Jesus was confronting my understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus, to be fully in alignment with Jesus. And so as we close today, as we've studied the scripture, and as I've shared some of my story, maybe for you, you're in two camps today. Maybe one or two of these rings true in your life. But you sit here today and you say, yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've not been around church a lot, or I have been around church, and I'm just not sure where I am. I'm not sure if I'm a Christian or not. I don't really know. And, and today, I want to decide to just jump all in. I, want, I know I need Christ. I know that I'm broken in my sin, and I need the grace and gospel of Jesus to fill my life. And you need your life to start being in alignment with Jesus. It's never been in alignment with him. And you need it to start there today. So that's one group of you. In a room of this size, there's probably a second group of people that today have sat through services like this, have heard sermons like this, have, have talked to people that are following Christ, and yet at the same time they realize as they take stock of their life that their life and your life is just not in alignment with Jesus anymore. There was a season where that was, and there was a season where you felt fully alive, but at the same time you sit here today feeling empty, bored, apathetic. You realize you're misunderstanding who Jesus is, and you need your life to realign itself with Christ. The beauty of this moment is that those things both can happen. Is that in God's presence, there is freedom, there is joy, there's grace, there's a second chance. And today, he offers that to either group you find yourself in. And if you're not one of those groups, I invite you to pray for people that are. I invite you to take that step and to be active in that way. But what I'm going to do is pray. And I'm going to invite, if, if you're part of that first group saying, I need to jump all in. I know I need Jesus. You don't have to convince me of that. I've, I've sat through today and I know I need him. And I know I need to start living my life in alignment with him for the first time. And if that's you, as I pray, I'll invite you to throw your hands straight up in the air. Just so people that are behind you, leaders and volunteers can begin to pray for you as you take that step. The second is if today you feel like you're just out of alignment. You need Jesus to course correct some things in your life. And you say, I want my life to be fully aligned with you so I can experience full life in you. And if that's you, I would invite you to do something a little unique. I would invite you to place your hand directly over your heart because I believe that what Jesus does in us typically starts in us. It starts inside and works its way out into our behaviors and thoughts and choices and decisions. And, and I know that Jesus wants to start there. So I would invite you, if you're in that second group saying, I, I need a heart change. I need my life to get back in alignment with Christ just to do that. So I'm going to pray. If you're in that first group, throw your hand up, throw it back down. If you're in that second group, I invite you to place your hand directly on your heart. And let's see God together. So let's pray. Jesus, we're incredibly thankful that today, though sometimes it takes a little pruning and moving of soil, that you are confronting our understanding of you. And we want the real Jesus. We want to pursue the real Jesus. So I pray today for those who have never fully aligned their lives with Christ, and maybe they've been asking questions, they're skeptical, they're unsure, but today they know that they need to jump over the edge. They need to go all in. 
I pray today you'd fill them with your spirit and your courage. And so if that's you with all eyes closed and no one looking around except people praying, I'd invite you just to throw your hand straight up in the air and throw it right back down. You don't even need to hold it up. Just throw it straight up saying, that is me. I need Jesus today. Awesome. And if you're in that second camp saying, I need my life to be realigned with Jesus somewhere I've gotten out of whack and I want to be fully aligned and alive in Him. If that's you, just place your hand over your heart saying, I, I need that. I need the real Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. So God, we come to you today with humility, knowing that you love us and care about us and want us to experience the real Jesus. Help us to align our lives and our hearts with you. Have your way in us. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we sing, I encourage you to press in. This song articulates exactly what we've talked about. The only thing that matters is his love chasing after us and the real Jesus being lived out in us. So let's sing and let's worship together.